0: There's something that all of us are good at. No one taught us to be good at it. Uh, no one gave us a class on how to be good at it. No one told us what to do or how we were supposed to do it. But there's something that all of us, were just good at. Innately, we are blessed with this ability. Uh, I, I know how to do it, and you know how to do it as well. And, and all of us do this. And that is, is from a very young age, all of us, very naturally and, and, and very inherently, know how to categorize people into the categories of us and them. It's just in us. We know how to do it. And we do it all the time. We meet people and immediately we size them up and put them into categories, whether they're like us or whether they're like them. We do it with the people who cheer for the rival sports team. We do it with the people who work for the rival uh, company. We do it for the people that are a part of the rival family. We know how to categorize people into these categories of us and them. Speaking of rival families, did everyone get their groceries this week okay? (laughs) Everyone's all right? My father-in-law emailed me yesterday, and he said to me, put a link, my parents live in Omaha, Nebraska, and he put a link to an article in the Omaha, the local Omaha paper, and it was on Market Basket and everything that was happening. And he said, I just wanted to make sure that um, and my father sent me this email, and I just wanted to make, he said, I wanted to make sure, you know, everything's all right up there. And I, and I, and I thought to myself, wow, I mean, this is, this is a big story, Market Basket. It's in the Globe, it's in the Herald, but if you reach the Omaha paper, <laughs> you know it's a big deal. But this whole thing that's happening right in front of us is a great example of what can happen when we categorize into us and them and we act on those categories. For the workers, uh, the ousted CEO, Arthur T. DeMoulis, he is an us. He's an us. And they will stand up for us. And the executives who are in place are them. And so this whole divide that we see happening in front of us is based on these categories of, of the us and the them. Psychologists call it social identity theory, and there's all sorts of famous experiments using children to show that this is something that's just in us. We categorize people into us and them, and then we make presumptions on people based on those things. And the people that fall in the us category, the people that fall in the us category, we tend to view in a positive light. And the people that fall in the them category, we automatically ascribe negative things To them. I had an illustration up here, but I think someone thought it was trash. (laughs) That's okay. This is why, when we see someone, uh, we find out that someone else drinks coffee from Dunkin' Donuts, we think that they're uh, good, hardworking, salt of the earth people because they're in us, you know, unlike those trendy, techie latte-drinking, Nora Jones listening, iMac using, novel-riding hippies over at the other place. We categorize people into us and them. It's what we do. Sometimes it has very serious consequences. Sometimes it has very serious consequences. All we need to do is look at what's happening in the Gaza Strip or what's happening between Russia and Ukraine, and in many other places around the world, to see that sometimes these categories of us and them, when the lines are drawn very deep, and we act on those categories, the very serious consequences are a result. In Jesus' time, people were no different. People drew up other, these same categories in the day of Jesus. They walked around and they knew who was part of us, and they knew who was part of them. And in the story we're going to look at today, we're still very early on in Jesus' ministry. If you've been with us, we're walking through the Gospel of Mark. We're still very on, in the, early on in the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And Jesus, very early on, he does something. It's not so much what he says, it's what he does. He does something that makes a very bold statement to his disciples and his followers and to us about who he came for whether he came for the us or the them. And Jesus takes the categories that everybody is used to, the categories that everyone understands as being us and them, and he does something that just throws everything in a whirlwind and causes his disciples and his followers and everyone else to have to rethink this whole thing of how they categorize people and who it is that this Messiah has actually come for. If you were with us last week, you know we've been going through in the Gospel of, Ma- of Mark, we've been talking through some of Jesus' early healings, and last week we talked through some of his, his parables, and uh, if you were with us, Dr. Scott Gibson was here from Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, and he talked about the parables of the seeds that Jesus uh, tells, and he told us that uh, the moral of these parables, the lesson that Jesus was trying to get across, is that the, the kingdom of God is like a small seed. It starts. The kingdom of God starts small, and God 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 grows it big. You remember, some of you. We talked about that last week. After Jesus gives that teaching, he says something. It's a small phrase, and to us, it means very little. To us, it doesn't mean that much at all. But Jesus says something to his disciples that must have rocked their world. In Mark chapter 4, verse 35, Jesus looks to the disciples. And he says, on that day when evening had come, Jesus said to his disciples, Jesus said to them, let us go across to the other side. Now to us, that may not mean much. But to the disciples, the disciples had probably never even been to the other side. The disciples would have been scared about the other side. The disciples would have had no earthly reason or desire to go to the other side. And so for the disciples, as they're walking along and everything's going great and it's early in the ministry and the crowds are building and people are coming and Jesus is healing and Jesus is teaching, he turns to them and he says this phrase that for them must have been so difficult to understand. He says, let us do this. Let's go across to the other side. They must have thought to themselves, why would we ever go to the other side, Jesus? Everything's going so well here. Everything's going so well on this side. Why would we ever go to the other side? Well, what is it that was on the other side? We'll have to back up a little bit. In 359 B.C., Philip II, Emperor Philip II, he took over a region of the world known as Macedonia. Stop me if you know this story. Do you know this story? Philip II took over as emperor in the region of Macedonia. And in 356 BC, just three years later, he he conquered a little city known as Crenatus and he changed the name to Philippi after himself, of course. Well, the reason he wanted that city is because that city was incredibly rich in gold. And so after King Philip II got that city, changed the name to Philippi, he started to mine the gold and use slaves to get as much gold as he possibly could out of that place. And when he was assassinated just a few years later, his son took over and his son took all that gold. And he used that money and those resources to conquer almost all of the known world at the time. And his son is named Alexander the Great. See, you know this story. And part of what Alexander the Great conquered was an area just south and east of the Sea of Galilee. Now, Jesus, when he was doing his ministry, he started in the region of Galilee, which is northwest of the Sea of Galilee. You can see it on the map. When Alexander the Great was done, his successors took that region, part of that region that Alexander had conquered, and they formed 10 cities over the years. And they called it the Decapolis. Deca is the Greek word for 10, polis is the Greek word for cities. 10 cities in that region that became self-governing city-states. And in that area of the world, those cities in the Decapolis became the center of Greek culture and Greek philosophy and Greek worship and Greek paganism and all of those things that come along with the Hellenistic world. And over the centuries leading up to when King Alexander was done around 300 BC and when Jesus came a little over 300 years later, there were 300 years of conflict between the Jewish people, the good, God-fearing, Torah-following Jewish people, and the godless, pagan Greeks who were in, who were in that area. And hundreds and hundreds of years passed. And all this time, you gonna first and second Maccabees talks a little bit about this if you've ever read those books, and a little bit after, the, for hundreds of years there were conflicts, many of them bloody conflicts over this region, and the Jewish people trying to sustain themselves and maintain themselves and to follow God the way they're supposed to in the midst of these Hellenistic Greek uh, godless people that are that are in the region. And it got worse in 63 BC when Rome when Rome conquered this region. And so not only did you have the Greek worship and the Greek paganism, but now you the Roman worship and the Roman paganism and for the, the people, the Jewish people who were trying to maintain this relationship with their God, it became exceedingly difficult and they had to fight to maintain it. So in the disciples' minds, no good God-fearing Jewish people, person would ever in their right mind get in a boat and go to the other side. That was them territory. That was the people that they hated. That was the people who for centuries had terrorized their ancestors and their relatives and made life so hard. If those people in the Decapolis did not exist, life in Galilee would be much better. So why would they ever go to the other side? And I can just picture the disciples huddled amongst each other they actually haven't known Jesus very long at this point and they've seen him do some cool things but they must have thought he lost his mind and I can hear them huddled together just talking to each other and trying to decide if they're actually going to get in a boat and go with Jesus to the other side can't you hear them just talking to each other is he is he crazy why would we ever go to the Decapolis? If other people find out that we're headed over to the Decapolis, they're going to they're think we've gone nuts. And we know he's done some neat things, but, but that's them. We would never go over there and talk to those people. Nevertheless, they've seen Jesus too mu- do too much already to go against him. So they hop in the boat and they start to the other side. And you know what the Gospel of Mark says happens? They hit a massive, fierce storm. And as they are trying to keep the sails up and trying to keep the boat afloat and trying to bail water out as it comes over the side, I'm sure in their mind, if it was me, I would say to myself, see, this is a sign. We are not supposed to go to the Decapolis. This is crazy. What on earth are we doing? Why don't we stay with us, with our people? This is our Messiah. He's come to save us. Why on earth would we do this? And Jesus stands up, Mark writes, and he calms the wind and the waves. And they keep sailing. They finally reach the other side. Finally come to the shores of the Decapolis. And when they get off the boat, the disciples who were probably already questioning why on earth they were going to this place, things didn't get much better for the disciples. This is what Mark writes in Mark chapter 5, verse 1 through 5. They came to the other side of the sea to the country of the Gerasenes. Gerasa is one of the 10 cities to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. The disciples get out of the boat in this distant foreign land and there's no greeting party. There's no celebration. The first person that they meet is this man who is possessed by a, Many demons who runs out of a cemetery, basically, runs down a mountain. He's out of his mind. He's cut and bleeding all over. And if the disciples felt like they weren't supposed to go there in the first place, and if the storm worked up their nerves, I can only imagine how this sight made them feel. I mean, have you ever been somewhere where you walk into the room or or, or you're in an area and you say to yourself, I... I'm just not supposed to be here. It's not for me. I'm just not supposed to be uh, with these people. I remember a few years ago, Lori and I were invited to go to her boss's, 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 boss's house. I don't know how many bosses. (laughs) But we were invited to go to his house. And not just his house. I I shouldn't say we were invited to go to his house. Um, We were invited to go to his summer house. And we drove up to his house and I pondered to myself as we drove up to um, uh, Gloucester uh, what it must be like to be able to afford homes for different seasons. We were driving up to his house, and we got to the gravel driveway uh, there. We're just right off of uh, Winger Chic Beach, and we drove down and, and parked our car. And as I walked into the front door, I thought to myself, this is the first home I've ever been in that actually looks like the Pottery Barn catalog just like those pictures look and the whole back wall of the house was glass which overlooked the inlet of the ocean uh, where all the boats were docked and i took it all in i took the house and the water and the furniture and everything else and i thought to myself i don't belong here (laughs) and then when we walked out the back door and down a couple of steps and hopped into a 60-foot wooden restored sailboat and we pulled out of the inlet, and along the way, he pointed out all the other boats that were on their moorings that he owned and that he liked to sail and race. And we pulled out in the ocean. I thought to myself, I'm way out of my league. <laughs> and then when we had dinner... And it was time for dinner. And he said to his wife, he said to his wife, "Uh, how many lobsters do we need for dinner? And and she told him how many we needed. And he walked out the back door, down the steps of the dock, pulled up a board on the deck, pulled up the lobster trap from underneath the deck, filled with lobsters that he had caught himself while he was scuba diving off his previously unmentioned (laughs) lobster catching scuba diving boats. He opened up the, the trap and pulled out the number of lobsters we needed, put the rest of them back for safekeeping, and came inside and we ate dinner. And by then I was convinced. I don't belong here. I was just hoping they wouldn't find out I didn't belong. But we know what that's like. We walk into a room, we walk into a situation, and, and we're like, man, this, I just, I, I don't, I'm not sure I belong here. And man, that's exactly how the disciples felt. This is not our place. These are not our people. We are not supposed to be here. This is them. This is them. These are not good people. These are people that have killed our people. And and we have fought with them for hundreds of years. This is not the right place for us to be. And, And the storm and this crazy man must have convinced them. We are not supposed to be here. And what is it that's happening with this man? It's tough to ignore this character that Mark talks about. What is going on with this man? Living among the graves, cutting himself with stones, so out of his mind that the people have tried to chain him down and they can't figure out a way to restrain him. What's going on with this man? Well, quite simply, there exists a very real enemy in the world a very real enemy in the world. And if God is the author of everything good, the enemy is the opposite of all of that. The Bible says that each and every one of us, when we were created, we were created in the image of God. What does that mean? It means that there's certain things about us as humans that God has placed in us, that we reflect because we were made by our creator. The fact that we are able to create. Our ability to think intelligently and rationally, our desire for relationship and community, all comes out of being made in the image of God. And the enemy's goal is for each and every one of us to do all that he can to destroy and take away the image of God inside of each of us. And when it came to this man... He had been quite successful, taking away his ability to think clearly, taking away his ability to think rationally, taking away the, 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 the desire to care for and maintain the body that God had given him and ripped him away from community, ripped him away from relationships and love so that he not only lived alone, but he lived among the graves And it's important to note before we move on that that enemy that did this to that man is still living and active in our world today. And it still works much the same way. This isn't just something that happened in Bible times. He is still living and active, and it still works the same way. He is still at work in the world trying to do everything he can to destroy the image of God in you and me. And I think that we read this story, and it's so elaborately described by the Gospel of Mark that we think, I don't know anyone that this has happened to. I mean, a man who lived among the graves and cut himself with stones, I don't know anyone like that. And yet, this year, over two million cases in the United States will be reported to doctors and psychologists of people, mostly young people, cutting themselves. Because our enemy is still at work, trying to do what he can to destroy the image of God inside of us. And two million is a low number. Most of those don't get reported. And all of us, all of us will participate in some sort of destructive behavior. Some sort of behavior designed to try and rip away the image of God inside of us. We'll participate in these things not because we we want to, not, not because this is what we want for ourselves, but we are led into and tempted and guided into these things by an enemy that is real and powerful. Everything that happens around sex and pornography and what we eat and what we don't eat and our laziness and our slothfulness and our gossip and all of these things that are designed to destroy the image of God and the value put into us by our creator inside of ourselves and inside of others. Is all the work of a real lurking enemy whose goal is to rip that out of each one of us. So, what does Jesus do in this moment? Verse 6, it says, And when he, that's the man, saw Jesus from afar, He ran and fell down before him, and crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And when he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country, now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us into the pigs. Let us enter them. So Jesus gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. We don't hear it here, but I kind of wish Mark would have followed these guys that were tending the pigs home to hear how they described this to everybody. Can you imagine uh, walking in from a long day at work and the people tending the pigs? His wife says to him, How was your day today? He would say, Well, we lost a few pigs. (laughs) He said, Well, how many did you lose? He said, Well, all of them. He said, How did you lose all the pigs? What would you say to people? How would you fill out the insurance form on this instant? But you know what the pigs are? The pigs are a real reminder to the disciples that they're not home, that they're in them territory. If you know much about Jewish law, maybe you know, maybe you have friends that are Jewish and they would still follow this today. The pig is an unclean animal. Tough to find an animal that's more unclean than the pig in Jewish law. And so a good Jewish person does nothing with a pig has nothing to do with a pig. So at home in Galilee, you don't see many pigs roaming the countryside. But when you're in Gentile territory where the pig is eaten at feasts and where pigs are sacrificed to pagan gods, when you're in Gentile territory, when you're in the Decapolis, herds of pigs would be everywhere around the countryside. And these pigs that, God, that Jesus takes the demons and sends them into the pigs and they go running down the cl- off the cliff, these pigs are a stark reminder to the disciples that they are not at home. They're with them. They're in Gentile territory. The herdsmen fled, Mark continues on, and told it to the city and in the country. And the people came to see what had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened, to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might go with him. And he did not permit him. But Jesus said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much God has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis, how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. Jesus comes to this man, a man who the enemy had done everything that he could in his power to destroy the image of God inside of him. The same thing that this enemy does to us, does whatever he can to oppress us and depress us and do what all that he can to take away the image that God has put inside of us. Jesus comes to this man and makes a very bold statement in front of the disciples and anyone who would read it, that he had come and he had authority to restore the image of God in those who were being oppressed and in those who were being destroyed, not just for the Jews, not just for the us, Not just for the ones who were in. But for the them as well. For the Gentiles as well. And it's interesting, isn't it? That the folks who saw Jesus, who heard about him do this, and they went and they saw the man who they knew was out of his mind living among the graves. It's not a secret. I'm sure they talked about him in the town, whispered about him. They went and they saw him dressed, cleaned up, and in his right mind. And they told Jesus to leave. Why? Because Jesus is a them to them. He's a them. He's not trusted. What, what magic has he brought? What, what, what has he done uh, that he would come and have authority to do this? So he says, get out of here. And Jesus very wisely does not let the man who was healed come with him because that man can speak to those people. And he tells them, listen, if I was to stay here and I was to try to roam through the Decapolis and say who I am, no one would listen, but you're a part of these people. Don't come with me. You go home. Go back to your friends. Go back to your family. Go back to all the thems that you know and tell them that I am here as their deliverer as well. I think that every single one of us knows the feeling of being a them. We know what it feels like to be on the outside. And all of us know what it feels like, especially when it comes to religion, especially when it comes to following Jesus, to feel like we're on the outside of that. And to wonder, even some of us that have gone to church for years, to wonder And when we're caught in those lonely, dark places, where we feel like maybe the enemy is gaining a, a stronghold or gaining ground in our lives, we know what it feels like to be caught in that place and to look across at all the good religious people. To look across at all the people that seem to have it all together. To look across at the people that seem like Jesus came just for them. And to think to ourselves, I am a them. How could this possibly impact me? We know what that feels like. All of us, when it comes to our relationship with Jesus Christ, start there. As a them. On the outside. Apart from Jesus' love. Apart from a relationship with him. And I want you to know today that if you're in that place Where you feel like a them. You are here this morning, but when it comes to knowing Jesus Christ, you feel like a them. All of us know what that feels like. Maybe you're just depressed. Maybe you feel oppressed. Maybe you're in a dark and lonely and distant place, and you are convinced that you are in a place where the grace of God does not extend, where Jesus Christ would never go. And maybe you're in this place, and you're saying, I'm just trying to get myself cleaned up enough so that I can be a part of the us, and then I can get to know Jesus Christ. Maybe that's where you're at this morning. I want you to know that Jesus is the kind of Savior who does not just come down and spend his time with the good, religious, God-fearing people who have their acts together. He is the Messiah who comes and goes to the them. He is the God who exists, not just for the us, but for the them. And all of us are a them. All of us are a them at some point. Jesus Christ makes a bold statement to his disciples. I didn't just come for the God-fearing, Torah-following Jewish people who need a Messiah. I came for them. I came for them. But I also came for the demon-possessed, tomb-living, insane Man on the other side. Jesus comes to wherever we find ourselves. The question is not, will Jesus come and find me wherever I'm at? The question is, when Jesus shows up on the other side, will you repent or will you reject? That's the question. Jesus will show up in the dark and lonely places. Jesus will show up in the places when we are acting the most unlike the image of God inside of us. He'll show up in those places. So the question isn't, will Jesus show up in those places? The question is, when he shows up, will we repent or reject. The man who was filled with the demons came and fell at the feet of Jesus Christ and said, Jesus, Son of God, what do you want with me? And Jesus delivered that man and restored within him the image of God as he was meant to be. But the people who were with him in the countryside rejected and said, Get out of here, you're not one of us. And the question for us this morning is when Jesus comes into those places, will we throw ourselves at his feet and say, Whatever you want, whatever you need to do, I am yours? Or will we reject him and say, Get out of here, you're not one of us, and we're not interested? If you're in that place this morning where you feel like a them, And that all hope is lost and that image of whatever God put in you when he created you is long gone. You feel oppressed. You feel depressed. You feel addicted. You feel ashamed. And you say, I'm not even close to an us. You don't even understand how far of a them I am. I want you to know this morning that Christ is there to redeem and restore you and rebuild you. It might take a while, but he's there to do it. The question is, is the, 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 the the, the thought that you may have that Jesus is so far away from you is not true. He's there. He's there. The question is whether or not we will repent and give our lives to him or whether we'll reject him. And for those of us that used to be a them and now we feel like an us, we better be doing what Jesus said and going back to the them and telling our story. Not just huddled with all the other us's. So glad that we found Jesus. That's what this man could have done. It would have been much easier for him just to be the 13th disciple and hang around with Jesus and the other 12. But Jesus told him, no, go back to the other them's. And tell them what I've done for you, and the call is the same to us. If you were them and you feel like in us, the call is the same to go back to the thems, the friends, the family, and to tell what Jesus has done. Maybe they'll repent, maybe they'll reject, but our job is to tell. And as our worship team comes this morning, I want to give you the opportunity Give you an opportunity to say one more in front of Jesus Christ that you want him to take control of your heart and your life and to restore you. You know, maybe you felt like a them in the past and you felt like an us in the past and today you feel like a them again. Jesus Christ is still there to redeem and restore because he didn't come for the us and he didn't come for the them, but he did come for you. He came for you. He came because he loves you and because he created you and because he made you and because you are his child. And no matter where you are this morning, none of that changes. He didn't come for the us. Jesus Christ didn't come for the them. But he did come for you and for your heart. And so this morning, if you've rejected and rejected and rejected, today's a day to accept. Today's a day to submit. Today's a day to repent. And to let Jesus Christ begin to do that work in your heart of redeeming and restoring and making you whole. Would you join me as we pray? Oh God, thank you that you have come for each and every person in this room. Lord, you didn't come to this earth for a certain socioeconomic class, you didn't come class, you didn't come to this earth for a specific nationality, you didn't come to this earth for any specific subset of people. You came to this earth because you love your creation. And every man, woman, and child that you have ever put on the face of this earth is yours. That you have created and called by name. This morning, God, we say once again that where the enemy has taken hold of our lives and where we have participated in behavior that is sinful and destructive of the image of God inside of us, Lord, we are sorry this morning. We ask that you would forgive us and that by your Holy Spirit, you would do the work that only you can of redeeming and restoring and rebuilding the image of God. In our hearts and in our lives. Lord, I pray for those this morning that for the first time or the first time in a long time are asking you that you would come and that you would rescue them from the tombs, that you would come and you would rescue them from that place that is dark and lonely, where they feel like they can't even think anymore, where they're hurting themselves. God, I pray that as they fall at your feet and ask you for help, that you will begin to do your work as only you can. Thank you that you are faithful in that, Lord. And I would encourage you, if that's you, just in your own heart and mind, begin speaking to Jesus Christ. Maybe all you can say is his name this morning, but wherever you're at, you say, Jesus, forgive me begin to restore my life. I put my trust in you. If you would do that this morning, I promise you that Jesus would be faithful to begin that work of restoration. To begin a work of restoration that's unlike any program you could buy online. A work of restoration that's unlike any book you could read or any counseling you could receive, all of that stuff is important. But for our hearts and our minds to be made right and be made whole, it begins and ends with Jesus Christ. So God, we submit ourselves to you. And we thank you that you came for each and every one of us. We give you glory in Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with us as we close our service and worship?